0: I've studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. Words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football, year-round, nobody cares. Basketball, year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Trenus Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and, you know, I don't really know why, but lately, I've been feeling kind of nostalgic, you know? I think these damn kids today would say that I've got a case of the feels, but... That sounds so fucking retarded just to even say it that I refuse to ever repeat that. And if any of you should claim that I ever said that, I shall have to call you a liar. But, for some reason, what I've been thinking about lately, it's just sort of been on my mind, is what I call the vacation from hell. And if any of you need elaboration on exactly what makes this the vacation from hell... I recommend you track down and listen to my episode concerning Batman Returns. The exact episode number eludes me, but I've only done one episode about Batman Returns, so methinks if you find an episode wherein I talk about Batman Returns, this, my friends, will be the self-same episode in which it will be my pleasure to explain why this was the vacation from hell. But I'm not going to so much talk about that aspect of it, which is to say, the hellish aspect of it. Instead, what I want to do is talk about the comics aspect of it. Basically, for these huge long road trips, which is kind of how you have to define it when you're driving from Houston, Texas, to insert place here, Colorado, specifically South Fork, Colorado, that's a pretty fucking long road trip, right? And so, for road trips like that, what I'd usually want to do is bring my entire comic book collection with me. Now, that may sound impressive to some of you. Wow! Magnus brought his whole friggin' comic book collection with him on a road trip. Well, guys, I was... I was 11 years old during the road trip from hell. Okay? the Well, not so much. This was not the road trip from hell. This was the road trip to the vacation from hell. So... I was 11 years old, and so I had, what, like 50 or 60 comics or something like that in my collection, quote unquote. So to say that I brought my entire collection with me doesn't really cover all that much ground when you think about it, you know? So nevertheless, I wanted to bring my entire collection with me. And the other thing was I knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that on these huge road trips, It's imperative that, where possible, you pick up new comics. Seems logical enough. But I think I did pretty well for myself, considering the fact that, you know, we were gone for something like two weeks. And the, you know, I managed, you know, when your comic book collection is about 50 or 60 comics, and you add five comics to your collection, you know, you've, expanded your collection by a fairly decent amount, you know, and such is what ended up happening here. I picked up several comics that were on the newsstands, triple underline that part, on the newsstands at that time, and so I think it would be fair to say that I definitely had Batman on my brain at that time, which shouldn't be all that big a surprise because For those of you counting toes, this would be July of 1992 when we took this trip. And so that means all the shit that was on the shelf for the most part at that time was going to be, not just Batman, but there's going to be a lot of Batman on there. So, but the Batman comics that I picked up, this, uh, among other things, other comics that I picked up, the Batman comics specifically that I picked up, were, first up, this this was Batman number 483, title of which is Crash and Burn, and the subtitle for it is A Pyrotechnic Love Story, which I've always thought is just a fucking badass name for a, 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 a comic book, for a, a comic book story, because... You know, Batman, of all characters, kind of lends himself to a diversity of villains, and there's all different kinds of shit that you can that, that you can do, all different kinds of stories that you can tell, all different types of characters that you can throw in there. And it's, apart from all that stuff, it's also just a cool cover, because you've got this flaming, fiery cover with uh, Batman and Robin getting kind of blown to smithereens, and in the distant background a little bit is these shadowy silhouetted characters who one can assume are the villains of the piece and perhaps the titular crash and burn so crash and burn a pyrotechnic love story i just thought this was an amazingly not just well written comic because it is that but it was also just this is a good title for a comic you know crash and burn i just like that you know, and just the entire nature of the story. I'm probably going to do a show about Crash and Burn. That is to say, Batman number 483. I'm probably going to do a show about that at some point or another. But this is one of those comics that I picked up, and it really helped move the time along to know that I had all of these comics that I could read and just kind of pass the time. Because like I say, guys, not for nothing do we call this the vacation from hell. And I, like I say... If you're really that interested in finding out why it's called The Vacation from Hell, check out my Batman Returns episode. But I repeat myself. So anyway, lots of fun. I was happy to have that. But it wasn't just Batman that I picked up. I also, uh, on the way to uh, Colorado, also picked up Superman Annual Number 4, which, for those of you who don't know, this was a tie-in to the uh, summer event, Eclipso, The Darkness Within. And this was basically a storyline that DC was running with at the time where various miscellaneous and sundry characters would be eclipsed, that is to say, possessed by Eclipso, and then they go bad, and so hero must fight hero, or for that matter, good guy must fight good guy. And the franchise, at least of this particular issue, is Superman versus an eclipsed Lois Lane, and she pretty well beats his ass. I think at one point she even smacks him over the head with a traffic sign, which when you think about it, I mean, that would, I don't care if you're vulnerable or not, that would fricking hurt. So it was, it was a ton of fun. and And at the time I was still getting my head around the, I guess the concept of collecting comics and the tropes of comics, what comics are and, and all of these kinds of things. But even then this seemed to me to be the type of story that you should do you know, during these, these huge summer crossovers, you know, just a big, dumb, fun action story, you know, and that's what Superman number annual, uh, Superman annual number four is, it's just big, dumb fun, in my opinion, anyway, so lots of fun, and, re- and especially because of the fact that this is an annual, so it has more than 22 pages in it, that really helped, so anyway. Another thing that I picked up was uh, Superman number seventy, which, for those of you who don't know, was basically part two of a team up story involving Superman and Robin. So basically, the same month where Tim Drake gets blown to smithereens on the cover of Batman number four eighty three, he also teamed up with Superman in Superman number seventy, and basically, this I, I guess the franchise of this story comes down to Superman, Robin and Jimmy Olsen going up against vampires. And it's actually a continuation of a story, like I say, that actually began in Superman, the Man of Steel, number 14, which I don't remember seeing on the shelf anywhere, or else I probably would have picked that up too. But it's, it, this is one of those things that I think I ended up having to come back to as a back issue. I had Superman, number 70, but Superman, the Man of Steel, number 14, just missed it. But again, this was just a fun story, and it kind of answered, or at least suggested, you know, what exactly might happen if a vampire were to bite Superman? And honestly, it's one of those things that at first, you know, what you you know, what you assume is, well, Superman is actually vulnerable to to the to magic and to the paranormal. Vampires are paranormal. Ergo, Superman is vulnerable to two vampires, and he could be turned into a vampire, at least theoretically. But when you actually start thinking about it, no, he really isn't vulnerable to vampires. I mean, the nature of his powers being what they are, in a weird kind of way, they still protect him, you know? And that gets hinted at here in Superman number 70, but it actually gets fleshed out by, I think, Jeff Loeb much later on down the line. You know, what exactly happens to a vampire if they're stupid enough to try sucking Superman's blood? Dumbest fucking thing they could possibly do, guys. Just be sure of that. And that, like I say, gets hinted at here, but it gets expanded upon much further. But I remember thinking, you know, there was like real jeopardy. There was like real peril to this story as I was reading it when I was a kid. And... I don't know. It's just it's one of those things that just really sticks with you. And I think a great big part of that actually is to do with just how awesome this cover by Dan Jurgens is uh, for Superman number 70. It's basically Superman. He's got his head cradled in uh, this vampire chick's arms and his uh, neck has been punctured. He's bleeding all over the place and she's got what looks to be his blood in her mouth. And then you got Robin standing rather impotently in the background, holding a stake, a wooden stake. So, you know, you can interpret whatever you like from that symbolism. So it's, it's actually a really powerful cover, really effective, very well done. Just kind of, there's a sense in which, you know, this is sort of quintessential Dan Jurgens, And one of the things that this actually ended up doing, this team up with Robin, one of the things this ended up doing It actually had a payoff in pretty short order, actually, in Superman number 76, where uh, Tim is standing atop the roof of the Daily Planet alongside a bunch of other heroes. And on the one hand, he wants to say something, but on the other hand, it's kind of a typical teenager. He doesn't want to look like an idiot in front of the grownups, and so he just keeps his mouth shut. But, you know, this kind of affects him, too, because, you know, Superman didn't look down his nose at Tim now it's one thing for Batman not to look down his nose at Tim you know Tim had to prove himself to Bruce but then once he did Bruce took him pretty seriously Superman didn't have the benefit of all of that basically all Tim had going for him in Superman's eyes was basically Batman's imprimatur and that's pretty much it and you know just if we go by his own merits the fact that we're talking about like a a kid that isn't really much older than I was at the time that this book came out, and Superman is treating him like an equal, I think that would mean a lot to Tim, you know? And it would affect him on a very personal level whenever he found out that Superman was dead. And so the fact that he was visibly affected, he wasn't distraught, he wasn't upset, per se, over Superman's death, but this did affect him on a personal level. And this story gives him an entry point into all of that. It's it's not a major part of Superman number 76 from the Funeral for a Friend storyline. Not a major part of that storyline. It's not even a major part of that issue. It's just a blink and you miss it just sort of moment in Superman number 76. But it's one of many, many, many character moments that just ring true in Funeral for a Friend. And But that's the one that I always just Remember the most. When you say funeral for a friend, what I think of is Robin among a bunch of other heroes standing atop the Daily Planet building just trying to figure out what the fuck are we supposed to do about this? You know, how are we supposed to feel? You know, like what do we do as heroes, but what do we do just fuck heroes? What do we do just as people? You know, when our friend is gone now, you know? So that always just rang really true to me. Definitely because of the fact that I read Superman number 70 and thought, you know, Superman and and Robin, by which I mean Tim, they actually make a pretty good little team together, you know? And I remember thinking at the time, you know, I could stand seeing a few more of these uh, of these kinds of team-ups. Which, of course, fucking never happened. So, anyway. Another comic that I picked up on this road trip was Batman Returns, the official comic adaptation. Now, this is one of those comics that ultimately came to be very instructive to me that I'm not real big on movie adaptations, you know? There's something about, about reading a comic book that I can get my, head, my my head around. Like, you just read a Batman comic book, and I get that. Or you can buy a ticket and go see a Batman movie. And there's Batman. He's on the screen. And that I get. You take the comic, you put it on the screen. Fucking, there's your Batman movie, Hoss. That much I get. But the idea of taking a comic book, putting it on the movie screen, taking what's on the movie screen, and then putting it right back into a comic book, it's like something gets lost in translation whenever you move a comic book from the comic book and into a movie and then even more gets lost in translation whenever you take this movie and then put it into a comic book you know it's like the comic loses a little bit of its comicness just by virtue of being made into a live action movie but then there's something cinematic that happens that the story is just less effective now for not being cinematic it was meant to be seen a certain way it was meant to be taken in a certain way and now you're depriving yourself of that and so what the fuck is this and so I'm not saying it's bad it's actually a pretty uh, as far as comic adaptations go I guess it's pretty good but this is this was actually a sort of a watershed moment for me that kind of opened my eyes to the fact that the comic adaptation for Superman four, the comic adaptation for Batman 1989 these were not isolated incidents alright, there's something that happens, something that gets broken, or lost, or something. With these, with these movie adaptations, you just, they're just not for me, alright, put it that way. Maybe there's, a, there, there's a, a type of fan out there that really gets off on that, I'm not one of them. So, anyway, but really, the centerpiece of this road trip from a uh, comic book standpoint undeniably has to be Detective Comics number 647 and number 648 and just to kind of make a clean job of it I may as well throw in Detective Comics number 649 it's basically a three-part story that for some reason it just really hit my fanboy buttons in all the right ways you know there was something that happened reading these comics that what I came to realize is, okay, up to this point, I've enjoyed Batman stories. I really got into this idea of Tim Drake training to be Robin, practicing and, and uh, I guess, disciplining himself to become Robin, to become this thing. You know, I was very much invested in that story. But there was something that was transformative for me about specifically Detective Comics number 647 and 648. And again, we'll just throw 649 in there as well, just for fun and games. This was, I guess, when my Batman fandom kind of turned a corner. Maybe that's the best way to put it. So that's going to be what this episode is really all about. You know, I've decided that, you know, originally, you know, when I was putting together Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, I'm not kidding, guys. Literally, this entire time that I've been doing this show, I've sort of vacillated on on doing these comics. Well, do I want to do them? No, I don't. Well, you know, yeah, maybe I... No, I I should... Well, you know what, then again, maybe I do... And it was just this very ugly, kind of indecisive type of thing that was happening. And so what I've ultimately decided here is, you know what, fuck it. I'm going for it, you know? I want to talk about these comics because they in 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 really weird ways, they're really important, which doesn't necessarily translate to valuable, but they are really important as far as Batman comics and what Batman comics would be for about the next 10 or 15 years or 20 years, depending on how you look at it. And so there is that, but there's also the, what they meant to me, you know, to me personally that I want to talk about here. So that's what I'm going to be talking about in this episode. Basically how it is that Detective Comics number 647, 648, and 649 went from being just another Batman story to being something very different and a lot more important than just that. But that's all going to be in the next segment. For right now, I'm going to take a break and be right back after these messages. back now and ready to begin my discussion about detective comics number 647 648 and 649 this is a storyline that's i suppose collectively known as the return of the clue master but it really needs to be said that far from being the return of the clue master this was in fact my introduction to the clue master. I just didn't really have a tremendous depth of experience with Batman comics at this point, so this was pretty much my introduction. You know, and if that seems kind of shallow to some of you, just allow me to remind you that I'd been collecting Batman comics for really only two years at this point, and I was, I was pretty much facing the same exact uh, challenge, I guess, that a lot of kids in the pre-internet, pre-BitTorrent days were facing, where you kind of had to find a balance between keeping your collection up to speed and buying new issues, while at the same time trying to backtrack your collection and then fill it out. Now, I suppose a smart way to do it would have been whatever your, your beginning point was for for a particular series detective comics in this case whatever your beginning point for that was keep moving forward but just whenever you can start with one 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 issue backwards right so in my case my starting point with detective comics was detective comics number 618 so as I keep moving forward, maybe I pick up Detective Comics number 617, and then 616, and then 615, so on and so forth, right? That might have been maybe the smart way to do things, but uh, again, I remind you, I was only 11, so... But if I were to start something like that today, facing this te- the same exact situation today, that would be more or less my approach to it. So anyway, but like I say, I was only 11, so I can't be really held responsible for that sort of thing. Now, to kind of move on to something else, this may strike some of you as heresy, and if it does, well, honestly, I don't give a shit, but some of you may think of this as heresy, but one of the things that that I've just found just undeniable over the years is that I find Detective Comics imminently more appealing than I do Batman, which is to say the monthly comic book titled Batman. I don't know why, but Detective Comics, it just seemed more overall consistent to me. You know, there were times when the monthly Batman book, I have no idea what the fuck they were, they were going on about half the time, you know? A good example of which is mm, the Max Allen Collins run. You know, basically that period, immediately following Batman Year One. I would go so far as to say that Batman as a title was all over the fucking map. But Detective Comics just seemed overall more consistent. At least to me. You know, I mean, I don't know why, but for some reason, maybe it's just the fact that Detective Comics has lower sales figures than Batman does. And so for those reasons, it's expected to have lower sales figures, and so maybe it's just that people who work on Detective Comics know that they're not necessarily, they're not under the same type of pressure, they're not under the same gun as the creators of Batman are. You know, that could very well be the explanation. I don't know why. But for whatever reason, Detective Comics has always been more appealing to me as a title. Right? And that's true going literally all the way back to the beginning of my collecting, which, is, as I say, that was Detective Comics number 618. But that's also true even when you flash way the fuck forward, because it was not all that long ago that I was f- flipping through some Detective Comics issues starting in, actually, oddly enough, I think the 740s. So that's around about the year 2000-ish, around there. So, basically a hundred issues ahead of where we are now. Detective Comics is still the more interesting title to me. So, whatever you guys want to make of that, it, it, you know, whatever. It's just, it's, it's one of those things that it needs to be pointed out. And if some of you find that disturbing, get over it. Now, to finally get down to brass tacks here in terms of the stuff that we're actually here to talk about, finally, Basically, to start off, this is Batman, there I go, see, I fucked it up, fuck it, I'm leaving that in. This is Detective Comics number 647. Writer is Chuck Dixon. Penciler is Tom Lyle. Inker is Scott Hanna. Colorist is Adrienne Roy. Letterer is John Costanza. Editors are Dennis O'Neill and Scott Peterson. Synopsis is as follows. This is, by the way, the title of this thing is inquiring minds. Oh, and if you really want to have something to cry about, we'll come back to the cover in just a second, but you really want to cry about something? Look at the cover. The cover price of this thing is a buck twenty-five. Read it and weep. How did things ever get this far? Anyway, story synopsis is as follows. Arthur Brown, once the costumed criminal known as the Clue Master, is declared cured of his criminal psychosis and paroled from Blackgate Penitentiary. In truth, however, Brown's been cured of his compulsion to send clues to the authorities. His criminal instincts remain as strong as ever, and he quickly dons his old costume and seeks out a new gang with which to commit robberies. Brown's intelligence leads to a string of successful heists, and true to his word, none of them are foreshadowed with his trademark clues. Meanwhile... Former District Attorney Armand Kroll launches his mayoral campaign based mainly around condemning Commissioner Gordon and the police department for relying on costumed vigilantes, specifically the Batman. Ironically, one of Kroll's speeches inspires a blonde teenage girl, about whom I'll have more to say momentarily, to begin a vigilante career of her own, beginning with foiling Brown's future heist by sending clues of her own to the police. The constant stream of clues eventually attracts attention from Batman and Robin, who confront Brown but fail to find any evidence of wrongdoing. Nevertheless, this confrontation causes Brown's new gang to become suspicious, forcing Brown to kill their former leader in order to maintain control. Now the undisputed leader of the gang, Brown vows not uh, to kill not only Batman and Robin, but also the imposter, quote-unquote, Clue Master, who threatens to ruin everything. As Brown rants and raves like a lunatic, keep in mind, guys, this is the 90s, so a mysterious figure in a purple-hooded cloak watches silently from the shadows. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, guys, to start with, the thing that actually captured my attention about this comic, just, it, literally made a jump off of the rack, was without question the Matt Wagner cover that we're looking at here. And really all of the Matt Wagner covers that we're going to be talking about, a lot of these same comments can really be said, of you know, equally for all of them. But I'm going to tackle them one by one all the same. Basically what we have here, it's it's just a sort of generic uh, Batman and Robin glory shot. You know, there there's really nothing specific about this Issue that relates to this cover. I mean, it's. You could just as easily apply this to any of a zillion other comics released right around the same time, and it would be no more appropriate nor inappropriate for them. It's just. It, it, there's a sense in which it's just kind of there. On the one hand. But, dude, on the other hand, holy fucking shit. This cover is awesome. You know, it's. Because. I hadn't really seen a whole lot of Matt Wagner's work. Now, granted, I'd I'd heard the name Matt Wagner. It might have been from Grendel, but it was from something. I mean, his name was not totally foreign to me, but I hadn't really seen a whole lot of his work, so I really couldn't claim any special expertise about Matt Wagner or the way that he gets the job done. But I got to tell you, dude, just looking at this cover, number one, instantly picked this and Detective Comics number 648 right off the shelf because they were just kind of sitting there side by side number two I decided whoever this guy is and obviously it's Matt Wagner but whoever this guy is I would love to see what he can bring to his own Batman story you know if this is what he could and you know admittedly you know, because of the fact that, that it's a cover you know that, they're go- that artists are always going to put in that extra effort on the cover that may or may not be absent from the pages that follow the cover. Nevertheless, if this is the caliber of his work or even remotely close to it, I freaking can't wait to see what he would do with an actual story. You know, not just a kind of generic generic sort of pin-up or cover or or what have you, post or something like that. What can he do with actual storytelling? And the answer to that is going to be the subject actually of podcasts. I don't really know when, but sometime in the future, I'm coming back to this, guys. Be sure of that. But anyway, this is um, this is just phenomenal work. And honestly, if I have a criticism at all about the cover, and this is kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel here, I, I will admit, but nevertheless, if I do have a any kind of gripe or quibble about this this cover, it's actually the cover copy because I would love to have this art just as a standalone piece without the DC logo, without the Detective Comics logo, without the approved by the Comics Code Authority blurb, you know, without the, the cover uh, credits, you know, Dixon, Lyle, and Hannah. Just having all of that stuff taken off and just having the art all by itself because it would look fucking amazing. So... If the biggest criticism you have about a cover is that you want more of it, that's really not much of a criticism, now is it? But anyway, that's literally the best I can do. For once, the cover copy actually detracts from the power of the cover. You know, just the beauty of the art and everything. This is just fucking great. I, I just, I really dig it. It looks awesome. So, then you start getting into the issue itself, and, you know, I, I'd almost want to chalk this up to the Neil Adams effect, To where in the 70s, if Neil Adams did the cover of something, it was a safe bet that whoever actually drew the comic probably was not Neil Adams, but they put Neil Adams' art on the cover because they know that his art and his name are kind of marquee-ish. And so it would be worth it to have Neil Adams on the cover because that's... If you can't have him drawing the issue, and odds are you can't, because that guy couldn't hit a deadline to save his life, well, you can at least split the difference by giving him a lot of of covers, right? So, I'm not... And I don't mean that to be disrespectful to Tom Lyle, but it's just compared to the quality of the art on the cover, seeing that this is another issue drawn by Tom Lyle, well, some people might interpret that as a little bit of a disappointment. And so... Anyway, not trying to be disrespectful to Tom Lyle, not least of which because it's really only his work with Marvel. I don't really understand the way that this works, but when, especially in the 90s, like less so these days, I've noticed, but really back in the 80s and 90s and stuff, when artists would flip back and forth from DC to Marvel and Marvel to DC, you know, you can compare their work side by side. And an artist who was working at DC in January, and then starts starts drawing comics at Marvel in February, putting their work side by side. And it's, apart from the line style, which is recognizably the same, It's a, it would almost be hard to believe that it's the same artist, just because this is going to sound, I guess, maybe mean or sarcastic to some people or whatever, but it's like their technical competence went out the window the minute they started drawing shit for Marvel. And... Honestly prosecution's exhibit A for that is was and will always be Tom Lyle because anything that he ever draw for uh, or rather anything that he ever drew for DC I really enjoy. I think it's I think it's actually really good work. You know, I mean, a lot of people tend to have I think it's unjustified and unnecessary and kind of unfair even at times. But some people out there have a sort of a snooty attitude about Tom Lyle's work. And guys, I shit you not. Every single example I've ever heard some one of Tom Lyle's detractors ever mention, it's invariably his Marvel work. You know, nobody ever seems to have picked up a Tom Lyle comic that was done for DC and said, "Man, this was a real piece of shit." But it's something that happened that the minute he went over to Marvel, it's like the the core competence and his mastery of page layouts and stuff just went out the fucking window, all right? And I don't get it. I don't, and, I, I, and I seriously doubt that Tom Lyle listens to my podcast. And if he does, I seriously doubt he cares what I think. But dude, in the unlikely event that you're listening to this, I want you to understand this is not meant to be insulting or anything like that. It's just, I don't get it. I mean, I honestly don't know what happens when these artists go over to Marvel, or I, I should use a past tense there. I don't know what happened to these artists when they went over uh, to Marvel, you know, from DC, or for that matter, when they went from... uh, when they went to DC from Marvel. But when they drew shit for DC, it looked good. The pages were laid out in a coherent way. There was a clear storytelling flow that went through everything. And by and large, even if you don't necessarily like somebody's line style when they drew stuff for DC, what you could usually at the very least say for these guys is that you know there's a clear flow for the storytelling there's a you know pretty much which panel is supposed to be read and which order and all of this other stuff and overall it's well done on i guess a technical level you know now the artistic product may or may not be to your taste and guys I'll just be honest with you I'm really hesitant uh to criticize comic book artists unless they just absolutely undeniably suck it's gonna be a it's gonna be pretty rare that you'll hear me just badmouth a comic book artist just because guys do you have any fucking idea how hard it is to draw a comic book page yeah neither do i i just know or have reason to believe it's an incredible pain in the ass and it's something that i sure sure can't do and so it just doesn't seem fair to me that I should criticize somebody who is, even if he sucks, he is so fucking far ahead of me in terms of artistic pedigree that it's almost not even worth it. Now, for every rule, there must be an exception. And a good exception is Bill Sienkiewicz. That guy, and uh, to be fair, he's really, uh, he's really more of an inker. At least whenever he's most annoying to me, he's an inker. And so it's not necessarily... He's not necessarily exempt from this whole I'm not going to badmouth a comic book artist thing, you know? Because that's really more for pencilers. But he does pencil work too. So anyway, point is, fuck him. Okay, I have never seen Bill Sienkiewicz draw anything that I thought turned out good or... God help us, if he inks somebody. I mean, nothing. Nothing. But fucking Nothing breaks my heart more than to see the cover credits that show Bill Sienkiewicz as the inker and he's inking a pencil for whom I have nothing but love, respect, and admiration, you know? I, take Dan Jurgens for example, right? I don't even know if Bill Sienkiewicz has ever inked anything by Dan Jurgens, and I also don't know if Dan Jurgens even listens to my podcast, but in the event that Dan Jurgens does listen to my podcast, dude, I want you to understand I am not criticizing you or anything like that for all the reasons I've just mentioned, not to mention the fact that I actually really do just fucking dig your work. I think you're amazing. But dude, nothing would break my heart more than to see pencils by Dan Juergens, inks by Bill Sienkiewicz. I mean, Jesus Christ, just put a gun in my mouth, you know, because that would just fucking break my heart. Right. So anyway, to take all of this back to the issue at hand, which I seem incapable of discussing now that I start thinking about it, but whatever. I just improvise this stuff. I speak as it comes to me, and then I just move right along. The point is, I really enjoy Tom Lyle's work for DC. The minute he moved away uh, from DC, the minute he did work really for anybody else, maybe it's just that he needed an editor to say, dude, you need to do a better job in these pages. I don't know. But I look at his work on, say, Spider-Man, right? And yeah, it's by far... Look, anybody can tell you that Spider-Man has had worse artists working on him at some point or another in his publishing history. Uh, Tom Lyle isn't even in the top 100 of bad Spider-Man artists. And the reason for that is because he's not a bad fucking Spider-Man artist. But for some reason, I don't know what it is, but for some reason, like I say, the minute these DC artists went over to Marvel, something happened where their line style stayed about as, as appealing as it ever was. If you liked it with DC, you're probably going to like it with Marvel. But just in terms of uh, the meat and potatoes of visual storytelling in comics, it just went out the fucking window the minute they, they showed up at Marvel. And I don't get it. But Tom Lyle was as much a victim to that as anybody else. You know, it's it's weird. It's fucked up. I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. But it is true, you know? So, put a pencil to it. Anyway, so... The issue starts off, on an ominous enough note, with the Clue Master... Basically having it out with the street gang here. Cutter's street gang, right? And basically... Guys, what you need to understand is this opening bit kind of fell flat for me the first time I read this precisely because I had no idea who the clue master is, and obviously or at least i I shouldn't say obviously at least I assume that Chuck Dixon created this street gang specifically for this storyline so that the clue master could move in take over, and then that'd be the end of it, so. It took a sec for me to get my bearings with this story, you know, and basically what it is that's going on. But one of the things that kind of works for me, though, is that the Clue Master, he doesn't have like this Legion of Doom type of relationship with uh, Cutter's gang. Basically, Cutter Stark, at least to start with, is halfway tempted to blow the Clue Master's head off. And in the end, Clue Master does end up uh, killing Cutter Stark but what needs to be said is that the clue master and cutter's gang are not instantly bosom buddies you know just because they're both on the wrong side of the law that doesn't make them allies you know and so what what we're seeing here is i think a pretty realistic conflict and by that i mean it's plausible you know cutter wouldn't necessarily welcome a complete outsider into his gang you know Clue Master would need to would need to prove himself, you know, and that's exactly what we end up seeing here, you know. So I just like the fact that the Clue Master he's not instantly welcomed with open arms. He's got to show that he's got the goods, and in exchange for Cutter and his gang loaning the Clue Master their muscle. He'll give them the majority of the shares for the crimes that he plans, basically of his genius, his criminal genius. And all around, everybody here has a clear and understandable agenda. You know what they're thinking. You know what they're doing. And most of all, you know why they're doing it. So I guess what I'm saying is leave it to Chuck Dixon to take care of little details like that, because not a whole lot of shit gets by uh, a writer of Chuck Dixon's caliber. So the reason that, by the way, just in case I've never actually said so, the reason why I kind of tend to kiss Chuck Dixon's ass a little bit, guys like Chuck Dixon, Paul Dini, Alan Grant, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Guys, my God's honest opinion is you could go to any given con, any given weekend, and you could pick any given 10, 15, 20 people, just pick your number, and I'd be willing to bet money that they could give you one good Batman story. As a matter of fact, I bet maybe even some of them could give you one great Batman story. But to me, what separates the men from the boys is writing good Batman stories month after month after month after month. The writer that can do that has my respect. And so for that reason, Chuck Dixon has my respect. Guys, I have one, possibly two ideas for a Batman story. That's it. All right. On the best day I ever had one, maybe two ideas for a Batman story. And then after that, I'm on my fucking own. All right. I could never do what Chuck Dixon does. And even if I could, I seriously don't think I could do it as elegantly as he does it. So as far as I'm concerned, Chuck Dixon's the man. Anyway, so that basically is pages one, two, and three. Uh, Getting into page four, what we're seeing here is a hostage uh, situation involving Commissioner Gordon, Sarah Essen, and and a goodly number of uh, other, uh, other officers from GCPD. And really what we're seeing here is sort of a James Bond type of moment where, guys, every single comic is theoretically somebody's first, and so... What you need to do if you're writing these stories is you need to show Batman being Batman, doing what only Batman can do and in ways only Batman can do it, right? And so what we're seeing here is basically a sort of generic hostage situation where Batman and Robin have to swing to the rescue and basically take out, uh, well, fuck it, the bad guys. I was thinking of trying to think of a cutesy little name for these guys, but whatever. Just take out the bad guys. And so that's that's what happens here. Now, it needs to be said that guys, if you knew nothing about Batman, this would give you a pretty good idea of who Batman is and what he does. If you've been following the story for a while, you haven't necessarily seen anything new yet. But keep an eye on that, because that's soon to change. We've seen Batman take Robin into dangerous situations like this quite a few times now. In fact, I dare say this is not probably not the most dangerous situation that Batman has ever taken Tim into. But it's still pretty dangerous because you're basically talking about a a hostage uh, situation where both of the perps are armed, right? So, remember I said this. We'll be coming back to that point in not very long. Golly, I wish they'd number these fucking pages here, because then I could give you the actual page numbers for this stuff. But there are no page numbers here, so you guys are on your own. Don't, Don't gripe at me about it. Gripe at DC. But anyway, so from there we cut to the Exposition News Network, TM Michael Bailey, where it basically gives us a rundown on... The political situation in Gotham, while also turning the story. You see, again, guys, when you're writing these stories, what you have to do is, you have to create these scenes that accomplish multiple things. You can't have a scene that does just one thing, and then another scene that does just one thing, and then another scene that does just one... No. What you have to do is accomplish maybe two or three or four things with every scene that you have because you've only got 22 pages to tell your story. That's it. And even if it's a multi-part story, you still only have 22 pages to tell this chapter of the story. 22 pages, only this and nothing more, right? And so what we're seeing here on this page with the Exposition News Network that interviews first uh, uh, Gordon and then cuts over to Armand Kroll, First and foremost, just on a technical level, it gives us the resolution to the hostage situation. We see Batman and Robin swing into action, but we don't actually see anybody get handed over to the police. Well, that changes a little bit here because we see that uh, the hostage guys, the perps, are being taken away in cuffs by the cops, so Batman handed them over. Next, we get a panel uh, showing Jim Gordon... That establishes he's not confirming or denying that Batman played a crucial role in the, these, uh, these perps being apprehended. And then from there, we start getting a little bit of the flavor of the political uh, situation as it's going on in Gotham City with uh, Armand Kroll, the mayoral candidate, basically lambasting the hell out of Gotham City PD in general. And really, Jim Gordon in particular, for depending so much on Batman and basically non-law enforcement. He says, Gotham is drowning in a cesspool of crime. The police are underfunded, poorly trained, and unmotivated. It's this city's shame that a phenomenon like the Batman has arisen. It's not up to some masked vigilante to protect our citizens no matter how good his intentions, no matter how noble his cause. And the last couple parts of this, and this is where it turns once again, we see a young woman watching Kroll on TV, and she's clearly affected by the fact that he said, no matter how good his intentions, no matter how noble his cause, that seems to have hit her right where she lives. So let's summarize here, shall we? This page shows us the aftermath of the hostage situation, it shows us that Jim Gordon has a little bit of, a, of an uneasy relationship with the police, and as much as he's not confirming or denying that the Batman took down these perps. Number three, uh, Kroll is clearly on the warpath here, and he's not exactly happy about the fact that Gotham City needs Batman. And then number four, what we see is a woman being clearly inspired to become a a costumed vigilante in her own right. This page consists of one, two, three, four, five, six panels, and it accomplishes four things. That's how much of a badass Chuck Dixon is, guys. Respect. Anyway, so moving right along, we get a little bit of a montage here. Of crimes that uh, the Clue Master is is uh, leading uh, uh, Cutter Stark's gang through, and what I think we're supposed to infer from all of this is that all of these different jobs are just sort of snap uh, snapshots and little snippets and whatnot from. Several different heists. I mean, this is basically supposed to be a summary of many different crimes that the Clue Master is performing, and leading uh, Cutter's gang through. Such that by the time it's all over, Cutter is now, well, he now trusts the Clue Master. Put it that way, and that's a good thing to keep in mind because we flip over to the next page, and what we see is the Clue Master finally getting the the uh, the ten percent of the cut that he was asking for in the first place. And I don't know this to be true, but what I think we're supposed to infer from this is that it's taken a couple of days at least for things to get to quite this level. So there you have it. Meanwhile, though, outside of, uh, Cutter, Cutter Stark's little hideaway here in a a garage, we see a figure clad in a purple hood Eavesdropping on this whole thing, and Clue Master makes a special point of saying, "I'm not, I'm not sending uh, clues uh, to the police anymore. That's not, that's not going to be my thing. I perform crimes seemingly at random, but all of these, all of these targets are chosen carefully. I'm just not going to tip off the police about what I'm going to be doing. That's an important thing to keep in mind because." what we see on the very next page is Jim Gordon and Sarah Essen receive a clue as to the clue master's big move and what's going to be happening in the next couple of days just in time for Labor Day weekend so and i i just kind of dig the way that this page is paced it's the one that starts with gordon slicing open this this envelope using a mail opener and then ends with the Batmobile cruising through the city, cruising through the streets of Gotham City with the bat signal lighting up the sky. And I, first of all, I just dig the way that this, that this page is laid out and how it's paced and everything. I dig the dialogue, uh, because yeah, it's a little bit expository in some ways, But again, every single issue is somebody's first, so exposition isn't really all that bad, at least in my book. And the other thing is, it basically sets up the fact that, yeah, there are new clues, I suppose, being kind of crude clues, but clues nevertheless, being sent to the police. And that pretty much informs what we're seeing next in uh on the following page with Batman, Robin and Gordon basically hammering this all out. And then from there we see there's a scene in the Batcave where we see Batman basically trying to figure out who is it who might be sending in these clues. Now some of these some of these pictures that he's looking at on the Bat computer some of these I actually recognize one of them I think we can reasonably say, is the Riddler. The other one, or one of the other ones, is obviously the Clue Master. So this much we know. From there, another obvious one is the Joker. So he's recognizable, that's fine. But the other two, one of these, ha- one of these is a blonde guy and he's got kind of shaggy hair. Not long hair, like uh, the Clue Master has. He's actually got hair past his shoulders, but some other guy has just sort of bushy, long hair. No fucking idea who that guy is. I'm just, maybe I'm just blanking on it. I have no idea. The other one, though, uh, on the far, the far right at the bottom of the page, looks like the prankster. So it kind of makes me wonder when... I mean, have I just missed an issue of Batman? I mean, has the prankster ever paid a visit to Gotham City? And if he did, I kind of have to assume Batman would have kicked his ass. So, I, don't, I mean, I I don't know what's going on here. That's that's a very good question. Anyway, so from there, we cut back to the blonde girl, whose name apparently is Stephanie. She's clearly the one who's sending in these clues to the police. And her mom basically appears to be a drug addict. I mean, let's just call it what it is. She needs a refill on her prescription, and she's addicted to prescription drugs, basically is what we're saying here. So one of the weird, well, not a weird thing, but Stephanie kind of has this sort of, this look that I've always kind of associated really more with the 80s. She's got that sort of wavy looking hair going, and she's got one of those, it's sort of like a tank top but I guess it's not, but it is in a way, sort of. Then she's got an over shirt on top of that that exposes one of her shoulders and those kind of hip hugger jeans that go past her belly button. And it's just, this whole thing just looks kind of 80s to me. And, you know, I, I'm not trying to nitpick stuff here, but I mean, I, 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 as far as I know, fashion had really changed by about the summer of 1992 or i guess the winter of ni- of 1991 when this stuff would have been written and then drawn so i don't know i mean was i mean was this still a thing at the time i'm mean, i'm not trying to nitpick you know but i mean w- were people still dressing this way in 1992 i'm i don't know i don't remember that but maybe they were i don't know anyway so following that batman and robin intercept arthur brown as he's carrying some some groceries home from the supermarket. He makes a run for it, but he ends up getting cornered by Batman and Robin. And unfortunately for, well, not for Arthur Brown, uh, one of Cutter's henchmen has been watching this whole thing, has basically seen Arthur get cornered by Batman and Robin. So what might happen with this? Well, the answer still to come for right now, more clues are being sent in to Gotham City Police, and it's clearly a jigsaw puzzle that's been cut into pieces, and then the pieces are sent individually every couple of days to Commissioner Gordon's office. And at this point, Batman and Robin, they figured out the castle motif that's going on in this picture, but they haven't really figured out, they haven't really identified what the exact target is going to be just yet. So a little bit of a challenge going on here. After which Gordon lets Batman and Robin know, yeah, you know what? I know that you guys are helping, but and you are helping, you know, certainly you're helping keep the streets clean, but in a weird kind of way, you guys are actually becoming a little bit of a pain in my ass from a political standpoint, just because let's face it, the guy who will be elected mayor, he will win this race is, well, when it comes to the idea of vigilantes seemingly doing Gotham City Police Department's job for Gotham City Police Department, he's not happy about that. Make sense? He is not happy at all. Like, there's a thing that's called happy, okay? Okay and Armand Kroll is not that thing. In fact, you might say he is unhappy about all of these vigilantes and stuff running around kicking ass on criminals in Gotham City. So this has turned into a little bit of a political pain in my ass. So uh, just so you guys know, I mean, I'm grateful. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm happy you guys are here. I don't want to have to go after the Joker. But you guys are kind of making things a little bit of a pain in the balls for me. You just need to know that. And it's just, it's kind of funny of to, to think about the different pressures that Commissioner Gordon has to face in, in the line of duty. You know, yeah, there's the sort of day-to-day reality of, you know, you are in charge of the entire fucking police department in a city that regularly gets attacked, for lack of a better description, by costumed supervillains. So, you know, sympathy there. But uh, there are political realities to the job of being the commissioner of police that, let's face it, are not very much fun for Gordon to deal with. So this is actually going to become a bigger and bigger and bigger point of contention as the Batman books move along and start getting into, shall we say, other things. But just remember that it's coming up here, guys, because this is not incidental bullshit. If you're following the continuity of Batman titles here, what the future is going to bring in terms of goings-on with Gordon and Kroll and all this stuff ain't fucking pretty. It's still going to be an issue, guys, in three years' time. You know, the aftermath of all this stuff. Just to let you know how... How deep this really goes. So, anyway, elsewhere, <sighs> Cutter Stark has basically had a huge misunderstanding with the Clue Master. The gang attacks the Clue Master, so Clue Master defends himself. Uh, ninja kicks a few people, breaks a few noses, knocks a few heads. Cutter Stark, though, probably gets the worst of it when the Clue Master smashes a, a one of his vials of shit across Cutter's face, and it's actually an airtight epoxy that has affixed itself and attached itself to Cutter's face. Airtight. So that means that basically Cutter, being as his nose and mouth are blocked, is slowly suffocating in front of everybody. And guys, you know, this was a code-approved book, and I get that. But at the same rate, you know this was still kind of off-putting to me when I was 11 uh, 11 years old and reading this stuff for the first time because I thought, dude, this is a terrible fucking way to die, you know? And no one's even lifting a finger to help him, including this guy's own fucking gang. They're not even trying to help him, you know? And basically everybody's just standing around watching this guy suffocate. And I just thought, that is a fucking terrible way to die, you know? I mean, look, my opinion is that the worst punishment that anybody deserves is one bullet to the head. That's it. It's over, it's quick, it's easy, it's painless. Yeah, I guess it's a little messy, but, you know, what I'm saying is the victim doesn't suffer. Whereas suffocation... Yeah, you pretty much black out after about 30 seconds or a minute or something like that. But... I've read people say that you're actually still alive for a good two, three, four, five minutes after you black out, and you feel everything, you hear everything, and that's it, you know? So, that's just, that's a fucking terrible way to die. And, yeah, on the one hand, it's not really all that graphic. It's not like you're seeing some somebody's brains get splattered on a on an axe or something like that. But, you know, my point is that, like, even as a kid, I thought this was pretty chilling myself. So I don't know. Your actual mileage may vary. Now, excuse me while I get a sip off of my Coke here. I'm also going to get a drag off of my, my e-cig. And by the way, like I I kind of have to figure that's, annoying for some of you, but guys, keep in mind, I mean, I've been running my mouth here for what's it been, like, 35, 40 minutes, I mean, you know, taking a just a quick little break like this, not too much to ask. Mm. Anyway, so, moving right along from there, this is Detective Comics number 648, same creative team as before, story synopsis, or actually first, title is as follows. Let the punishment fit the crime. Story synopsis is as follows. From the recent string of clues, Batman and the police become certain that Arthur Brown has in fact returned to the mantle of the clue master. Batman, wanting to reduce some of the political pressure on Gotham, allow me to repeat that. Batman, wanting to reduce some of the political pressure on Commissioner Gordon, stays on the sidelines while the police raid Brown's apartment by themselves. Unfortunately, Brown has already vacated the apartment, leaving nothing but a bomb attached to Cutter Stark's corpse inside. While the police deal with the bomb, Robin sees a stranger in a hooded cloak fleeing the scene and gives chase. He eventually catches up to and unmasks the stranger, only to find a teenage girl. Robin is stunned by this, which allows the girl to smash him upside the face with a brick and make her escape. Ultimately, the apartment bomb fails to kill anybody, but Cluemaster still judges it to be a success, as the authorities will now believe him to be dead, at least for the time being. Thus, his ultimate heist, which is set for Labor Day weekend, remains on schedule. Sometime later, Commissioner Gordon is forced to meet with Armand Kroll, who's all but guaranteed to become Gotham City's next mayor. Despite his campaign rhetoric, Kroll promises to keep Gordon as police com- uh, commissioner, but pretty much only as a liaison to the Batman. Meanwhile, Robin investigates the young woman who smashed him upside the head with a brick and eventually determines that she's none other than Stephanie Brown, Cluemaster's daughter. Upon meeting Stephanie, however, Robin learns that she despises her father and seeks to ruin him by any means necessary. Impressed, Robin brings Stephanie to meet with Batman. Stephanie, now calling her costumed identity the Spoiler, tells Batman what she'd managed to to gather from eavesdropping on her father. Specifically, that a heist is to take place at the Castle Land Park Mall around 11 o'clock with millions in charity money as the prize. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, it needs to be said that as a kid, I kind of liked the idea of a criminal putting two and two together. And realizing that, you know what? If you send the police clues and hints as to your next crime there's a pretty good chance that the police are in fact going to figure out your crime and then arrest you. And yet, you need villains and characters who do that so that Batman and the police have entree into the story. So why would, or rather, how would you give... Basically, how are you going to put the good guys in conflict with the bad guys when it's in the bad guys' best interests to operate under the radar? But if they operate under the radar, there's really no room for conflict in the story. And Chuck Dixon has found, I think, a pretty compelling way of doing that. You know, Stephanie realizes her limitations. And so basically what she does is put on a disguise that she uses to to eavesdrop on her father and what's left of Cutter Stark's gang, and then kind of half-ass attempt to steal the, the, the missing part of Clue Master's MO and send clues and whatnot to the police so that maybe, just maybe, they'll be able to apprehend her father without her having to take an active hand and doing the job herself. I assume that this is the reason that she's doing it because otherwise you're sort of left wondering why she doesn't just rig, uh, Cutter Stark's old hideout to explode and then just be done with the whole sordid business. So that I think is why she's doing things the way that she is. And I kind of, I kind of like that, you know, she doesn't necessarily have the Clue Masters flair and panache in terms of coming up with, challenging riddles and clues and whatnot, but short of telling them exactly what they need to do, she's given them quite a bit to go on. And again, there's really nothing I can base this on, but what I assume is that if push had truly come to shove, if worst really came to worst, then what she would have done is made an anonymous tip to Gotham City Police and said, yeah, guys, this is where you need to go. This is the time you need to be there. Arrest the son of a bitch. So, never comes to that, but I think that if it had, that's what she would have done. So... And I just like the art on this page. This, And of course, they don't number the friggin' pages, so, I don't know, whatever. You'll figure it out. It's the page where... Batman, Robin, and Gordon go through all the different evidence and the clues and shit that spoiler has sent in to Gotham City police. So Batman and Robin decide, you know what, son of a bitch, we need to go around Gotham City knocking some heads together. So that pretty much is what they proceed to do. And they end up at meeting Jimmy Wing. Uh, a I don't, again, I don't know this to be true, but I have to assume that he was in, or at least he was involved in some way with uh, Kingsnake's move into Gotham City with the Asian triad gangs and all of that from Batman, I want to say 467, 468, and 469, around there, or maybe those exact issues. And I want to say that he that is, that's gotta be where Batman knows Jimmy Wing from, I assume. So anyway, and there's a little bit of kabuki theater going on here in as much as Jimmy doesn't want to talk to Batman, so he makes a sort of half-ass attempt to have one of his goons take Batman out. So Robin takes the goon out, and then that's pretty much the end of it. So Jimmy Wing knows he needs to give over whatever information he has, and so he says, yeah, the guy's doing this. Arthur Brown, he's your man, which pretty much tallies with what Batman had already begun to suspect anyway. You know, there's still the matter of the fact that the clues that are being received by the Gotham City police, well, they're not exactly Arthur Brown's style necessarily, but all signs seem to point to him as the culprit, so I guess he must be the guy. But then from there, the story takes a turn where... Robin spies with his little eyes, spoiler, running across one of the roofs uh, adjacent to Arthur Brown's apartment building, so he gives chase. Now, keep in mind, guys, Batman has no idea what Robin is running into here. You know, for all he knows, this person could have superpowers and could beat Tim Drake to death, but he lets him run off anyway. Now, the reason I mention this is to say that batman is giving tim a slightly longer leash to run on now whereas before during the aforementioned King Snake business from batman the monthly title called batman during that storyline i cannot picture batman allowing tim to run off like this unaccompanied but he does it here he's giving tim like i say just a slightly longer leash to run on you know He knows that Tim can handle himself better, and so Tim's only going to be by himself for just a few minutes, so Batman trusts him to handle this situation himself solo, and on the one hand, I don't want to make too big a deal out of this, but on the other hand, I kind of have to wonder, you know, I mean, is it even possible for me to make too big a deal out of this, because... This would have been unthinkable. You know, Batman would have been psychologically incapable of doing this, you know, just a year ago. And yet now, he seems a little bit more content to let Robin rush off into the unknown, you know? Or worse yet, the only partially known. Actually, I guess I should say only Or rather, the only partially known. So, whatever. That made sense. Basically, running off half-cocked. So, incomplete picture. He doesn't know what Robin's running into here. So, anyway. Basically, Robin catches up with her. And when you think about it, this has got to be kind of an interesting... Considering the importance that Stephanie Brown is ultimately going to have to the Batman titles. This is a kind of interesting way for Tim to be introduced to Stephanie, you know? She smashes him in the head with a brick. Smashes him. In the head. With a brick. That's... That's pretty heavy, you know? But this does ultimately work to benefit Tim Drake as a character. Because she kind of caught him off guard. He, you know, Robin unmasked her. But the shock of seeing a woman there kind of caught Robin off guard... And so that allowed Stephanie, her opening, to smash him in the head with a brick. And so she makes her escape. But Robin has enough to go on now that he's going to be able to... Well, he's going to be able to do some stuff with all of this. You know, with the information that he's he's gathered. And I'll come back to that momentarily. For right now, though... After Gordon's meeting with Kroll, he meets with Batman, who basically said, yeah, basically the only reason I'm going to be even allowed to stick around is because Kroll is afraid that if he fires me, then either you retire or else, you, Batman, you retire, or else you stop working with the police, and that ain't good. So that's got to be a little bit of a blow to Gordon's ego, at least somewhat, that he's really only being kept around because of who he knows as opposed to what he knows. So Gordon not I mean, don't get me wrong. He doesn't really make a big deal out of it. He doesn't like, you know, bitch and complain about it. But you kind of got to figure that's got to be on his mind, at least somewhere. Right. So. anywho, Later on. Tim catches up with uh, Stephanie. She's in, her, uh, she's in her work uniform from the looks of things. So Tim decides just basically keep an eye on her, swings back to her place in his Robin outfit later, and she's in her spoiler outfit, basically on her way to do God knows what. And basically, rather than fight each other and team up, as was sort of customary in the 90s, Robin and Spoiler just team up from the outset Robin then brings spoiler to Batman, and she blows the whistle on quite a bit. After which, Batman asks her, what exactly do you call yourself? And she answers, the spoiler. Now, we were still very much in the Jurassic Age of the internet at the time that this thing came out, so I guess calling somebody spoiler back then didn't necessarily have movie connotations to it like it does now, but nevertheless, interesting name. And it is, nevertheless, I think very descriptive and very accurate as to what Stephanie's doing. She's trying to spoil Arthur Brown's little scam that he's got going on here, right? She's basically trying to be the spoiler. So that kind of works for me. I mean, it is a kind of a goofy name, especially in the modern age, but it still works for me on that level. So, Because of that, I dig it. And that, I think, is basically it for Detective Comics number 648. Now, uh, getting into Detective Comics number 649, same creative team. And the title of this thing is MAULED. That is M-A-L-L-E-D. Not mauled like harmed, M-A-U-L-E-D. This is M-A-L-E-D. Sorry, M-A-L-L-E-D, mauled. Like shopping mall, but now you're adding a past tense to it. So it's kind of like a gerund, I suppose, but less so. Anyway, story synopsis is as follows once I have a sip off of my Coke. And after I take another drag off of my e-cig, because guys, once again, been talking for a while. All right, story synopsis for mauled is as follows. Batman accepts the Spoiler's information on Cluemaster's Master's Labor Day heist, but refuses to let her fight alongside himself and Robin, as he trusts neither her on a personal level, nor does he trust her lack of experience. Spoiler is basically told to go home, but as soon as the dynamic duo are out of sight, she heads for the Castleland Park Mall herself. Meanwhile, at midnight, Cluemaster Master and his gang put their plans into motion and quickly steal the millions of dollars collected by the mall's charity, Telethon. So basically, Cluemaster robbed a Telethon. Which makes him pretty much a heartless son of a bitch. Anyway, so Batman and Robin quickly interrupt the heist and subdue several of the Cluemaster's men, but Cluemaster's getaway helicopter arrives just in time to take him, his remaining henchmen, and the loot into the air. Before Batman can catch up to Cluemaster, the Spoiler descends on the helicopter and beats the shit out of the rest of the Cluemaster's men. Furious, Cluemaster grabs the Spoiler and tries to use her as a hostage against Batman. Batman warns Cluemaster against this and then reveals that the Spoiler is none other than the Cluemaster's daughter. A shocked Cluemaster unmasks Stephanie who takes advantage of his distraction and wraps a chain around his throat, that is a chain around his throat. And tries to strangle them. Stephanie then attempts to, <clears throat> well, kill the guy because of the way that he's mistreated her over the years. But she's ultimately convinced to spare Cluemaster's life by Batman. As Stephanie's mask blows away in the wind, police helicopters begin closing in, bringing the Cluemaster's ultimate heist, quote unquote, to a whimpering close. The end. So, what did I think? Well, here, once again, we have just this friggin' badass Matt Wagner cover here on Detective Comics number 649. And again, it's sort of generic in the sense that it doesn't really say anything about this story. It's just kind of here. But, you know what? That actually is okay with me. Because not, not every cover needs to be, I don't know, like a snapshot of the story. Sometimes it's, it's okay for a comic book cover to just look cool. And speaking of looking cool, there's this kind of glory shot on page one of Batman and Robin swinging through Gotham City, followed by the spoiler. And she looks a little whatever on page one, but Batman and Robin, dude, they just look friggin' cool swinging around like that, especially Batman's cape. It's like, it's it, it's wider than Manhattan. It's just flapping in the wind. It's blowing everywhere. It just looks fucking awesome. Love it. Anyway, so from there, what we get is a sort of a mechanical scene where Batman basically tells Spoiler, fuck off. He, I'm not taking you into uh, into battle. And if you don't like it, you can lump it. But Spoiler pretty well quickly sizes up the situation and realizing, and realizes that, you know, Batman is not going to willingly take her into battle but he is nevertheless the best chance she has of arthur brown going back to prison so she pretty much tells him everything that she knows which isn't necessarily everything there is to be known but certainly she tells him everything that she knows although you kind of have to wonder did stephanie know that the clue master was going to attempt some kind of air evacuation because she seemed to be in the right place at the right time to get the to get the drop on the clue master which just sort of makes you wonder so, to start with, though, it is safe to say that the Cluemaster and Robin really don't like each other all that much, which is weird if you consider the twists and the turns that their relationship would ultimately take in years to come. Now, excuse me while I get another sip off of my drink here. <clears throat> anyway, so moving right along, we get basically to the big climax of the story where the Clue master's men move into position... And basically, just start getting everything ready for for the big the big robbery, which they pretty much they pretty much set in motion right at the stroke of midnight. But before even really getting into that, there's this moment where Tim I'm not gonna say he talks shit to Batman, but he does kind of mouth off a little bit. Batman says, "How is he?" meaning meaning Two Face or not Two Face? Meaning Clue Master. How is the Clue Master planning on hauling all of that cash away? And... Robin... doesn't even try to answer. I would, have, I would have thought air evacuation would have been kind of obvious, but you know what? Maybe it's not. But anyway, Robin doesn't even try answering that. He simply retorts with, The cleverhoods really give you a charge, don't they? I mean, this is your idea of fun, isn't it? And Batman replies, I wouldn't like to put it so lightly. I'd refer to it as a challenge but at the bottom of the page it looks like batman has a sort of half smile on his face that val kilmer kind of specialized in it's like half of his face is all broody the other half is kind of smiling so it kind of i i I think the combination of these two things is actually very successful it lets you know that batman isn't above enjoying at least some aspects of his job this isn't fun and games for him by any stretch but that doesn't mean he doesn't enjoy at least some aspects of this, and I, I kind of dig that. So anyway, from there, the the robbery begins in earnest, and Clue Master described uh, disguised as uh, Robin Hood, and then his thugs, who are all just kind of dressed similarly in costumes and stuff, basically make a they they make their move, and they're getting ready to make their getaway in fact when Batman and Robin swoop uh, swoop into action and basically most of the henchmen close in on Robin and attack him right away and guys here again Batman is taking Tim into a very dangerous situation and a year ago I don't think he would have done this I think a year ago Batman would have tried to handle this all by himself and used Tim to, to feed him recon or just send him home or had a more crowd control, or just fucking whatever. But here, he lets him actually participate in battle, and in, Tim's life is actually placed in mortal peril on more than one occasion. So, another kind of neat thing is Chuck Dixon, how shall I put it, Chuck Dixon, he basically tried to p- uh, play Robin as a kind of a bratty young Spider-Man. So, at every step through you know, this issue, You've got Robin, and he's smarting off to all of the different henchmen and everything. He's making fun of them. even says at one point, this just isn't your night, Jimmy. Because once again, he beat the shit out of Jimmy when he and Batman first arrived on the scene. And I guess Jimmy found his feet, so Robin comes back to him and starts beating his ass again. Saying, this just isn't your night, Jimmy. Because as the ass-kicking is going on, Clue Master is escaping with his loot and leaving Jimmy behind. Which leaves jimmy something other than happy and who can blame him so anyway jimmy pretty well loses it at that moment and comes at robin with it's basically a shiv i mean he's got a broken piece of glass that that he's trying to stab robin with and robin's used to batman always being there to bail his ass out of trouble and that's not happening here i mean if you know basically if the swat team hadn't shown up when they did uh, Batman might be burying another of his teenage sidekicks. So, anyway. Things uh, carry on from there. and Stephanie unmasks herself to her father. And basically manages to get him subdued. But not going quite so far as to kill him, even though she desperately wants to. And that's pretty much the end of the issue. But it's not the end of the spoiler. Not by a long shot. She's going to play... I would argue a bigger and bigger and more important and more important role in Gotham City and in, and in these, these Batman titles as time goes by, such that by, by about the time you start getting to 2007 and through there, she is officially one of the main uh, characters in these books. You know, so, you know, rising up from such humble beginnings like this, and, and yet here we are. It's just a a really powerful, really fun story. But the thing is, guys, the part about it that really works for me is maybe not so easily replicated, and that is the... I guess just the nostalgia factor of this. You know, how much I've loved these comics and how long I've loved these comics. It's just a ton of fun. I really enjoy it. So maybe it's just nostalgia, maybe it's something else, but all in all, I really dig this issue. Now, one of the things I've tried to do as I've gone through all of these issues is not go into laborious detail about the art, but guys, the art, you know, you may hear the name Tom Lyle and have certain preconceptions about it, but guys, the art here is first fucking rate. These covers are first fucking rate. Any or all of them, in my opinion, could, and I think should, serve as posters. I would love to have uh, posters of these covers uh, without all of the cover copy and all that stuff. So, I doubt uh, Matt Wagner is listening to this, but in the unlikely event that he is, you know, dude, I hope you got a pretty penny for these things whenever you sold them at auction, because this stuff is just fucking great. Or sold them on eBay, or just fucking whatever, because these covers are just fucking amazing. So, Anyway, as I say, though, this is not the only time uh, that Matt Wagner has drawn Batman. I'll come back to his actual Batman comics at some point or another in the future. I know not when. I simply know that I will be doing it. But otherwise, that's pretty much really what I have to say for these issues. They're just incredibly sentimental to me. And they got me through. It seems kind of weird to say it because I'm talking about a family vacation here. But they got me through, I think, a pretty tough time, and so maybe it's just because of that I'll never be able to be uh, unbiased about them or ambivalent or whatever. These are just, uh, just fun Batman comics, and I highly recommend them to all of you. And that, I think, is basically it for me this week. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week.